Well, Tim Mixon, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you're a president of ATRATS, the Hood River Area Trail Stewards. Yes. As, as well as an engineer, a longtime gorge engineer. And you were one time my boss or something like that. Um, and you just got back from Idaho. Sounds like you had a good trip out there. We had a really, really good trip. Yeah. It's been, it's been pounding lately. A lot of skiing. Good you know, snow for skiing. We had two really good days uh, in the McCall Valley. Uh, one at Tamarack, one at Brundage, about nine inches of fresh each day. And yesterday was a Monday, so there was no one there. Yep. It was really good. It's pretty nice you can get away to do stuff like that, even though you're a <laughs> important engineer. Yeah, that um, was good. Before we, you can move if you want, because we're kind of looking through this. You can like, like, like you, this. If you put it like that, that way we can like not be looking through this. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> um, so yeah, and let's see, you moved here. When did you move here? I moved here in 1991 for the summer. I literally graduated college, got in not my car, but a friend's car. Mine, I didn't have a car at the time, and I drove here, and he was going to meet me here, and I was going to do one summer windsurfing. And uh, I definitely remember driving down the gorge mid-May, thinking, oh, my God, I'm never leaving. Mm. It was pretty impactful. Why? Well, I was coming to windsurf, but, like, I like the outdoors, like, and the gorge is just, I love it. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota with a lot of water. I went to school for four years in Colorado, and I loved the mountains, but I like water. Mm. Like, Minnesota has tons of lakes, and I was seeing both. And driving down the eastern gorge in May, it's green. It's pretty beautiful. It's pretty rarely green like that, too. Right, and it's pretty majestic with the, the cliffs and... yeah in the river well that's cool and then did you were you you said you were coming to visit i was gonna i was gonna do one summer of windsurf bombing big winds had said they would hire me mm. you know i had a degree in physics but i was gonna spend the summer renting gear out and windsurfing right that's what i did and then did you ever leave i i spent the next winter in jackson hole that was my one ski bombs year and then i i've spent every summer here since then i did a, a winter in jackson which was pretty nice and then i did a winter in minnesota working on a separate project which uh didn't really go anywhere but other than that i've been here yeah wow and you were originally working for big winds and then at some point you started working for andy or for hood tech yeah right and at that point, you were the only employee when you first started? I think the way you would say it is I went and kind of knocked on Andy's door and he was doing professor style stuff. I don't know if Mathieu was working for him remotely, but I started working for him. Uh, I was not an employee at the time, but within a year I was an employee. He just kind of paid me as a contractor to start with. So like one summer I would work weekends at big wins because i had told them i would do it and i worked for andy i worked for hood what was which was hood tech uh during the week right so you you kind of fulfilled your obligation but you really wanted to work 
in something oh, you studied or something relevant. I desperately relevant, right? wanted to live here and have a technical job, but there was no technical jobs. When I moved here, I was working for Big Winds. Steve Gates was actually mayor of the town of Hood, the city of Hood River, super connected, and we got along great. And he went out and looked. He knew I had a degree in physics, and I said, I really want to find something technical. And he, there was nothing. There was one guy in town that had some weird CAD system that converted 2D drawings to some kind of 3D. Gotcha. And he just kind of did it himself. But there was nothing. Mm. It's a very different place. <laughs> yeah. And what were you doing in the beginning for Andy? Well, uh, Andy is a was a professor at MIT of uh, dynamics called Sound and Vibration. So... Mainly, we were doing research project, SBIR grants uh, that he had, we had written and doing some studies for various types of sound and vibration. He was kind of an expert in uh, active sound control. So, you know, uh, noise-canceling headphones are kind of common now. They weren't common back then, but we did some stuff in the mid-'90s where we tried to make whole aircraft walls active cancelization so the noise coming from the outside would cancel and it works it's just very very heavy right what, like on some on like dc-8 aircrafts or something well, like that so and then dc the first hood tech true product that we kind of went headlong into was a active tune mass absorber for a dc-9 aircraft northwest Air, Northwest Airlines bought a bunch from Barry Controls and we sold the design or some business deal with, with a company called Barry Controls. That was really, I think, what you could say got Hood Tech off the ground. Huh. In situ had shown up, but they were pretty small at that point too. Right. And how did that, how did this system work that was like the one that was installed in the, in the DC-8? Oh, a DC-9. DC-9. Uh, that's going to be tough to do on a podcast, but I'll, the DC-9, which is probably a late 60s aircraft, it was one of the few airplanes where the two engines on the back were mounted, not on the wings, but to the fuselage, and the yoke was in front of the pressure bulkhead, and so the vibrations from the engines basically made the walls seem like speakers to people riding in the back. <laughs> and the engineers in the, call it the 60s, literally put tungsten masses on the end of stainless bolts that were that mass on a spring resonance mm. was tuned to uh, cancel or dampen the vibration from the engine, but it only worked at one engine speed. Right. So what we did was we pulled those masses and springs off and we screwed our own on but they had adjustable springs so we could tune the resonance mm. if you stick a mass like think of a, a spring uh, a, a mass on a slinky that has a resonance and if you tune it right it it essentially you can make it seem like the mass is a hundred times heavier that's about as short as i can describe it right and what was it like like who makes the DC-9? Or who made it? Was it was McDonnell Douglas back then. And what was it like integrating with that? Because did, did this go into production? Yeah, so that was kind of the crazy part. So some, we were working in the, the orchard and the barn at the time, and we were 
we had designed it for an aerospace company called Barry Controls, but they essentially just made rubber soft mounts. And we sold them this pretty sophisticated design, which had uh, motors and sensors and electronics box. And the truth was they didn't do an exactly a great job integrating it with the 100 and yeah, they sold something like 180 or 190 sets to Northwest Airlines. So at some point I would fly around and make sure they're working. It was pretty interesting because I would flying at night, the airplane would sit overnight and they would let us work on these aircraft that were flying people around during the day. Wow. And we just absolutely had to have the airplane ready for the day. Right. Um, but yeah. So I, you were doing all your testing at night? We would make sure the system, we would either install or fix. Yeah, no. And then what I would do is I would then go in the airport and I'd buy a ticket. I would have a list of the tail numbers that had our system. And I would call a Northwest Airlines and say, hey, where are these tail numbers flying? And then I would book a ticket on those flights which was pretty strange because they would ask me where I'm going and they would see where I had gone from the day, but I would just sit in the back with a, a digital tape recorder. It was early days digital recording. And then we would just see how noisy these things were. That's how we see if they were working or not. Right. And But you guys weren't doing anything in theory that would affect the integrity no, of the aircraft, nothing, right? Nothing. But... You did have skin in the game because you had to fly on the aircraft. I had skin on the game, and I was the guy, often the guy climbing around on the engine the night before. Mm. I will be honest. I was a little, uh, I don't know much about the airline industry, but some of these guys, I wouldn't let them work on my car. It's not super high tech, but there's so many backup features that I guess the system works. Uh, but it's an interesting behind the scenes was pretty interesting. And that's just so different than the airline industry today. Right? I, I Being no able idea. to do something oh like like testing like that like working uh, on it at night and like I mean maybe you can. I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I guess yeah, I guess I don't know either. Pre 9 I think the big difference is pre 9/11 you probably couldn't do some of this. They wouldn't probably let me walk around around the airplanes at night. But right. I have honestly no idea if they would let people work on their products. Right. I was pretty surprised what, what I was able to do. That is surprising. And what kind of other stuff did you guys develop? What are, kind of other products were you guys working on? Well, or was it, was it not products and mostly SBIR? The, 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 thing for the, the, the product for the DC-9 was by far the most productized we had gone mm. uh it was sbir grants and then it kind of split two ways we started helping in situ there's a uh, pretty tight link between the start of in situ and the start of hood tech right um we started helping in situ more where we started developing a camera and then there's another group of guys that work at hood tech that took the sound and vibration ideas and those guys they call themselves they're actually the original hood tech and they do blade tip timing right. on turbine airplanes now and turbine engines now it's mostly power generation they they go to big power plants and they drill holes in the in the case of it and they put sensors in and they attempt to uh find predict cracks in the turbine blades right because they're super expensive and uh turbines 
Yeah, that my buddy Nico was doing. He did an install yeah. in India. Yeah. And that that's a story in in and of itself. But were you involved with the I, BVMs, the yeah, blade I mean, vibration monitoring before, stuff? Before before Hood Tech moved out of the orchard, and in situ wasn't buying cameras. I was doing sensors. Mm. I was Nico. I think did a lot of. Uh, I was doing the fiber optic sensors. That was kind of my thing. Right. But as soon as Alticam was kind of needed to do turrets or gimbals for uh, in situ, we kind of had to split up. Right. That's it. It's how would you describe Hood Tech's business model over the years? Because it's crazy. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Because you were doing SBIRs, and then at one point you started doing engine stuff for in situ as well, right? So you were you were. Oh well, I should, that's back up. I did some engine stuff for in situ when Tad McGear moved to the gorge to make in situ what he wanted it to be. He hired three guys. He hired an double E Ross, who you work for, right? Uh, Kip Jackson, who was the pilot. And a guy named Kurt Ziegler, who was the programmer, uh, and he—I think he needed—he wanted to do some engine work, and he trusted Andy Von Floto on that. And I was working for Andy, so in the very early days of in situ in the gorge, I was doing small, like 1.2 cubic inch, I think it was Enya uh, engine testing out of a school bus on Andy Von Floto's orchard. Right. And I did that all the way through the first deployment of in situ at in Australia, mm. where they sent seven Arasond aircraft to Australia, and we all went down there and flew them around. And then after that, uh, Hood Tech had enough work for me on other things. That's when the DC-9 product or, uh, development really took off. So I jumped from being... I think you could say I jumped from doing engines for in situ, completely unqualified, <laughs> uh, to developing this thing for the DC-9. Right. And, and were you pretty much the lone engineer working on the No, not at that point. At that point, Andy had brought in Corey Raisler. He had brought in Peter Tappert. Matthew Mercadal had been there for quite a few years. Gotcha. But is Matthew Matu? Yes. Okay. But who's a software guy, right? He's Was he an, always? He's always, he's an everything guy. Okay. He has applied, I think his degree is a PhD in applied mathematics from MIT. Oh, okay. Okay, so you get to do what you want. <laughs> yeah. And then, so eventually you transitioned into the, the, the DC-9 stuff. And then at, what, at some point you transitioned to the cameras. Yeah, that's, I think that's more of an in situ story. I think the story goes through the 90s, in situ had an airplane called the Arasond. The electronics in the, the whole point of the Arasond aircraft was to fly around an electronics package, which was no different than a weather balloon had. I think it, it you could measure GPS location, temperature, humidity, barometric pressure, and then they would fly a certain pattern to figure out the wind speed. So it was basically a flying weather balloon. And so after we did the Australia de deployment, in situ got paid or 
they would go fly in thunderstorms because it was a very effective weather balloon because you could fly in thunderstorms and give people really good data of what the sensors read at anywhere you wanted. Right. Uh, and that, I think, became less interesting as the 90s grew on because they had done a bunch of it. And I think the story goes, Tad and Andy were trying to figure out what to do next with a company. And I, I think the story goes... Andy suggested, well, we should just do a stunt. And so they agreed to try to fly across the Atlantic with a UAV, which had never been done. And right. the in-situ crew, which is really like four of them, right. uh, two or three of them flew to New York, and then one flew to across the Atlantic. And I think they weren't allowed to fly from New York, so they drove to Newfoundland, and they launched the aircraft from a rental car. That was actually the other thing is, is I developed the original launcher off of a roof, rooftop carrier. Mm. I think we did it off of Big Wind's rental racks. <laughs> um, but the story I heard, I was not involved in it, but they, a crew flew to, was in Newfoundland. They launched an Aerosan trying to fly to Ireland. First one up, I heard, I think it just went crashed right away. They had three aircraft with them. Right. They launched the next one and said, hey, go to Ireland. Two days later, it didn't show up. <laughs> yeah. And then the story is they launched the third and said, hey, go to Ireland. And there's no way to communicate with this thing once it gets, right. you know, 50 miles away or something. They sent it to Ireland and called the guy in Ireland that's just sitting on the coast, probably on a runway or a road. Yeah. And said it's on its way. And like two days later, his computer started beeping and they landed it on a, a roadway or a runway. And it was the first UAV to cross the Atlantic. Right. And I think... The story goes, from that, they got a bunch of venture capital, and they wanted to develop a thing called the Scanigal, which is what they have now. And the whole idea was to make this airplane called a Scanigal, and the Scanigal was to help tuna fleets find fish, because mm. they had heard that uh, helicopters were on big tuna boats, and helicopters were really expensive. Right. So the idea was to get this little UAV to go out and find the fish and then they would go fish them. Well, they never actually made it cheaper than the, than the helicopter. But what they did is they suddenly had an airplane and a camera from us that could go find things. And right. then nine 11 happened, Iraq happened and the usage model completely changed. Right. How do you feel about that? I was pretty conflicted at first. Yeah. Uh, I've gone both ways on the whole thing. I would say, it was, I had kind of a, well, first of all, after 9-11, you're, the whole thing was very weird. And then they went into Iraq and we didn't know what was, how it was going to be used. And I will tell you one thing that happened to me. I went to some meeting in 2005 and this guy came up to me and said, Hey Tim, is that your system or whatever? He knew about our camera and then situ airplane, not just hood tech. And he says, I need to tell you. When we went into Fallujah, we had a scan eagle above us, and we could see people around the other side of the building. Just that one airplane saved 20 guys in those each day. Right. So that, you know, there's Makes a lot of confliction good. there, but that one felt pretty good. I don't, I don't think we should have gone there, but I don't think we should give those guys bad equipment. Right. So that was, that's where I was at that point. Yeah, the way I, I've thought about it a lot, too, and I kind of, it's kind of 
blood or technology. Because yeah. you're you're not deciding whether or not the country goes to war. You're just deciding whether or not you're going to help develop technology yeah. for war, right? And yeah. and it's also not it's not like it's armed stuff. No, as far as I know, we haven't done anything. Our camera, our gimbals haven't been anything on anything armed. Right. And so at some point you became kind of a leader, right? Or maybe you were always a leader, but you had eventually you had younger engineers and younger engineers. Like I, I at one time, one summer was working under your leadership, although there's not a lot of structure at, at Hood Tech. But when did that start happening? When did you start have pe people that you kind of had to give direction to at least? Because just for people that don't know Hood Tech, I guess maybe maybe first off, how would you describe the structure <laughs> of the Hood Tech organization? Very and... flat. I think everyone <laughs> agrees it's very flat. And there's a few blips, and I think maybe I'm a blip. Uh, and Matthew Mercadal, Mathieu is a blip. Uh -huh. But it's extremely flat structure. Yeah. And that's that's on paper. Is it the same way on decision make like i think it depends on the situation i think that one's a hard one to describe kind of who has the expertise who's yeah. been working on it yeah what, well when you were there what how did you think it as you were in college you were just in college yeah it was like my last year of college how did it seem for you it definitely seemed i mean there was definitely an organic hierarchy yeah right and and to be fair, I was doing a lot, mostly production stuff, helping the production team. There's definitely leaders in the production team. Mm -hmm. There's, And then in the engineering team, it definitely felt like there was definitely the the guy that was kind of the electrical guy or the software guy, which would be Matu. Yeah. Or you were like the mechanical, but you also seem like just the, everything. You seem like the closest thing to an engineering director. I think that's true. I think... Over the years, as we've produced a lot of stuff, I had to become the guy that worked closely with production to organize that because they look to some technical guidance. And I think that's super important. Um, but otherwise, it's pretty flat. And how do you guys like because you guys are very super repeatable, right? Like you you make the same thing and you make sure it does exactly what it's supposed to. And by God, it pretty much does it, right? I think, oh yeah, I actually think, I think you could say what we lack in structured organization, we make up for in pretty, when it comes to communication within the engineers about problems, we're very good. I think we are very good at problem solving. I think we're honest about it. People don't hide what's not broken and we test the crap out of this stuff. Right. Like we test, test, test. Mm. Truthfully, we don't trust any of the mill spec standards. We test to what we think the worst thing that could happen to our turrets are. Right. Which annoys our customers a little bit because when they say, hey, how do you do on 810G, blah, blah, blah. We do that testing mainly because they want us to do. But we generally try to over test and not do some over-constrained testing that some Milstech spec standard guy does. We want to test. We know how our customers use it, and we just hammer the crap out of stuff. Right. And does does that make it... 
I forget what I was going to ask. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, has it always been that way? Where yeah, do you get? Yeah. I think Andy, the owner absolutely does not want to ship stuff that is possibly going to fail. Like one really unique thing about hood tech is we have carte blanche to fix problems. If there's fifty thousand dollars, I'm not familiar with this term. What is this carte uh, blanche? It's a, maybe it's a maybe it's the wrong term. But I can we can do whatever we 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 can do what it needs to happen to fix a problem. And if there's thirty thousand dollars worth of machine parts that are going to get thrown away, we throw them away. Right. And that's really unique. Right. Like, uh, whatever it takes to fix the problem, we fix the problem. Right. And it and. Would you say that time is the absolute highest time other than, well, I guess meeting whatever requirements you guys define and time, are those the two things that you guys value most? Yeah. I oh. think we value a technical solution, a sound technical solution the most as we've developed more and more products, doing things fast is more and more difficult. That's mm. a problem as, as you have a history it's it would be really nice not to have that history because you could just start from scratch. Right. But we we're at where we're at. Right. What do you think you have? What do you think is the effect that Tim Mixon has had on oh, hood shit. tech? <laughs> I think you're asking the wrong guy. Um, I think everyone, all the engineers would probably laugh because there's just a million things that I made random decisions and we lived with them for years and. A lot of them are really good. I'm proud of a lot of them. And a lot of them we've paid for. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not afraid to make a decision, and not all of them are perfect. Um, That's pretty important, isn't it? Just dis- making a decision at I, some point? I can't think of anything more important. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, like you have... I've known a lot of engineers that fret about stuff, and they don't make decisions. And what happens is they don't build anything and then they're given a deadline and they build something and it doesn't work. Right. So I am all about build it, test it, rebuild it, test it, rebuild it, test it, and then ship it. Right. Fail three times. Yeah. I don't think anyone's capable of building something that doesn't fail. You're either building something that's too simple or you're not pushing the envelope. If you build something and it works the first time. Right. So what would you say has been the hardest part for you about working at Hood Tech? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> what do you what do you look for? I mean, is it hard to find good employees? Is it is it hard to is the human side of things? That tends to oh, be the really hard part. The human side is the hard part. I mean, <laughs> we don't know where to go, to go into details, but it's always <laughs> the hardest part. And I think people need to realize you could be the smartest guy in the world. And it's hard to get done what you need to get done because you have to deal with people. No one, I don't think there's many businesses out there where one person does the whole project, right? You got to be able to work with other people. Right. So it's, I'm, I'm trying to think of what someone else would think of, of how we've described hood tech, because to me, it's so clear but I'm imagining it's it's probably this like, well, what the hell? How the hell does it work? I think there's some of that, but you can imagine a it's a building with some pretty smart, passionate engineers that really want to live there, 
and I think I've asked enough of the young ones, young guys, including your brother. Have you ever, I mean, he, your brother's told me he's never le- left the building super pissed off at me. I'm hmm. pretty proud of that. And we, <laughs> are, we argue, but we have technical arguments all the time. Right. And they don't end up as bitter arguments. They just, we might think that the solution's different. Right. But if you work through a bunch of testing, it becomes pretty clear kind of the best way to go. Right. And we're not afraid. Like, I actually think one of the best ways to solve a problem is to split it up and try two or three options and see which works better. Mm. There's nothing worse than a group of people standing around and agreeing that the best option is something and you haven't tried it. Right. And then you forget about going left and you go right. Right. So we often come up with two solutions or two ideas that might solve the problem. We'll do both. Hmm. Which can be expensive. Right. But you often find a solution. Hmm. And it, that's interesting that hearing that my bro- what you said, that my brother's never left the building upset. And I think a lot of it also is people are, people feel like they're valued there, right? They're I com- hope so. They're hope compensated. So. They have, it's extremely flexible in giving people free time when they want to take it, right? But is that, it's probably hard a little, like, do you, do you think people, oh, I don't want to, like, not take advantage, but, like, do, do you think it, it, it pays off to be that liberal? I think it does. I, I can't do this on the podcast, but I have a, let's see if I can do the visual, a really, um, organized company in my mind has all these rules and is completely paralyzed. We don't want to be there. Right. And then there's the really uh, chaotic, uh, mismanaged, uh, blind ways to do stuff. I want to be a little closer. I like to be a little more chaotic. I don't want to work for a company that's ISO blah, blah, blah. And, and be told exactly how to do something. I like to see people, people like to be creative. Right. But you could probably say people, if you asked people in the engineering, they'd probably say I was the one pushing to make it a little more organized because I think maybe we were just shy of it. Right. And that's fine. But I have, I mean, I would, I think it would be awful. And I think most of the engineers I work with wouldn't want to work for a highly structured uh company and that's and if you if that's who you want to work for you probably don't last very long right with us and it it seems like you just like you have this demeanor that is so relaxed <laughs> and so calm. have you, you ever you, been <laughs> are you getting that from me or your brother I no, mean, for from you me. from your brother or me or yourself no from me okay. i mean i mean he hasn't said anything to the contrary but like okay. i've never seen you frustrated it happens. Does it? Yeah. What get, what gets you frustrated? Oh, poor communication. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. Yeah, I had a pretty good temper as a kid. Really? Oh yeah. I yeah. would have never guessed. I would blow. <laughs> and I've blown. It happens. Did you have some revelation with your temper? With like That's a good question. I think Oh, this is just me. I think at some point I started trusting myself. Like, 
I think I ask enough questions and to make a decision I, and I don't mind making mistakes. So really like if I build something and it doesn't work, I don't get super frustrated. So if someone builds something and it doesn't work, it's not that big a deal to me. And maybe that's what some people are surprised at that I wouldn't get super mad, but I think mistakes are a good thing. What drives me nuts is when two, two people can't talk to each other. Mm. And I think in the engineering world, that means arguing and disagreeing with each other, but not having a negative opinion about that. I right. mean, when there's a problem in front of you and the solution's not obvious, I think it's almost helpful that two people think there's two solutions or three solutions. Right. Because, man, think about COVID. Like, COVID hits, no one knew what to do. Right. Right. And so you kind of work your way through it. And that's what we did with COVID. We kind of just kind of did what we thought was best. Right. You know, a few people were from home, but we worked in the building a lot. Right. Here's a good example. I don't know how public this is, public this is but we didn't know exactly how to handle COVID. We had a handful of people in the building that thought the world was going to end, and a hand people thought that it was a comp just not a big deal, and the rest of us were just trying to figure out how to navigate. And to give you an example how we solve problems, we decided just to test the crap out of the people. Right. And so we, what we did was we had uh, uh, a, what do you call it? Uh, we had a doctor come in and do PCR testing every week. We have about right. 60 people in the building and we would test 15 a week and we tried to randomize it. So someone in your work area got tested once a week. Right. And we had a few positives. We had no one get sick. But the amazing part about the whole thing was the people that were very worried that about COVID felt a lot better that we were doing all this testing. Right. And the people that weren't so serious about it knew they were going to get tested right. and it kind of was an equalizer right it i i wish we would have done it sooner mm. but i think covid's a good example of oh shit we have a problem and there's no simple answer to the thing about how to get through it but in the hood tech way you just tested the hell out of it <laughs> that's honestly what we did we spent a lot of money testing yeah but if you saved one week of having the doors open and getting stuff done. Yeah. Like early right. on COVID, I would check my email. I was doing a lot of production stuff at the time. So I just had to be there. Production stuff. Uh, if we had, they had to work, they had to be there. Uh, the engineers, some of the guys writing code worked from home, but for the most part, we were there wearing masks. Right. And I'm, I'm pretty happy how we dealt with it because there's a million ways to do it. And I think we split the middle pretty well. Right. Back to what you were saying about communication. Is it hard to find young people who can communicate? Do you think it's changing? I think it depends on the person. I think some of the young people have come in. I think they do a really good job and some don't. I don't I, I think it's just like any other era. I think in my era, some people were really good, and I might not have been very good. But I think I've realized, at least I, I think I really try to communicate well. Right. And just make sure that we're all on the same path. 
Uh, some people come in super organized and some people don't. It's hard to say. I wouldn't generalize. Right. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm super fat. Like, it, it seems like with the problem, like the way you solved the COVID problem or tried to solve it or different problems, it sounds like you have a very clear separation between your personal emotions and thoughts and your professional, technical, critical thoughts. I try. Right. I think it's impossible, but I certainly try. Yeah, it's when people when when pe when there's not a clear distinction, it's it's interesting because you're talking about a technical thing and you're not, and then someone takes it personally, and then yeah. I think that's when communication falls apart a lot. Yeah, and also everyone has to when you develop something, if you've put the time into it, you want that thing to work, right? If you like, right, <laughs> you want to be right. You want to be right, but you have to be aware that you might not have gone down the right path. And there's nothing worse. The only thing worse than going down the wrong path the first time is to going down path, you know, keep going down the right path. You need to be willing to be like, oh, let's back up and change and and try something different. That reminds me of the concept that the design is always wrong. It's just a matter of how wrong. Do you? Oh, I, do tol you I totally agree with that. You do. The other one that Andy always told me this from the beginning was, Every sensor lies to you. There's no sensor on Earth that's not lying to you. Right. And I always think of people a bit like that. So when someone says something, <laughs> sure, it's like a thermometer. They're, but you got to kind of realize how many digits right are they? Right. Like when you look on the wall, that thing's maybe good to the first, maybe second digit, not the third digit. Yeah. But a GP, I mean, I like, I'm all about magnitude. But if you look at a your watch and you've got GPS on it. And it was like, Oh, that GPS is terrible. Well, but GPS is good to like six or eight digits. Right. It's crazy. Right. And for people to understand the magnitude of error, I think that's something that the entire world needs to take a little more seriously. Right. Cause the, de the design isn't completely wrong. You don't need to throw the whole design away. It's knowing where it's wrong yeah. and wanting to learn where it's wrong instead of just prove that it's perfect. Yes. Yes, I am all about that. Interesting. So I don't know much about your college experience. Where did you go to college? I went to a small liberal arts college called Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. It's a good, good liberal arts school, really hard to get into. I would not get into it now. Mm. But, uh, you know, I have a bachelor's in physics. I never, I would, the plan was to actually go back to get a master's in some sort of engineering. And my problem with that was a couple fold. One, I could never decide if it was electrical, mechanical, or whatever. Right. Because I really like to do everything. And I was learning crazy amounts of stuff working for Hood Tech. Right. Like, I got to work on acoustics. I got to work on mechanical stuff. Now I do optics. So... I think the guys at work would tell you that I am not the most expert in any of it. Right. But I probably have the best or one of the best overall views on how to link all these things together. Right. And that's probably my most value now. Most value. Would you call that like a system engineer? I think, or do I, you... think, <laughs> I think system engineer at Hood Tech's a dirty word. <laughs> it's about as dirty as manager. <laughs> Why is that? Ah, oh, that's just the history. That's just is that Nandy-driven? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like a, yeah, the title has a bad rap. Yeah. 
So yeah. why did why did you? Which want is to... interesting because we're all pretty much system engineers at Hood Tech. Right. I think it's an app title, but it's a dirty word. Right. Yeah. So why did you want to study physics in the beginning and not engineering? Well, Colorado College didn't have an engineering degree. Okay. It's a small liberal arts school, and the plan was to, actually the plan was to they uh, had a system where you go three years to the uh, Colorado College, and then you go two years to an engineering school, and you get a dual bachelor's. And it just didn't really kind of fit. I really liked Car Springs, and I kind of thought I would go do the one summer of windsurfing, one summer of skiing in Jackson Hole, and then go back to uh, some school and get a master's in something. Right. Uh, physics always was a big deal for me because it was the only science that kind of described the world that I lived in. And it was difficult for me to kind of decide one or the other because I still really like to do electronic stuff. I love to have conversations how electronics relate to mechanics. I think optics are super cool. I really like to do analysis. Um, so I'm actually pretty lucky that I didn't have to decide. Do you feel like physics is more of a fundamental? Yeah. And that... You seem like a pretty funda fundamentals guy. Well, I'm a fundamentals First guy, principles. but you got to remember I worked for Andy Von Floto through the whole 90s. And, like, when you have a conversation with him, you're just, if it's a technical conversation, everything is based out of the calculus-based physics class in college. Right. Like, everything. Right. If you have those books, if you have that in your head, you'll do very well. Right. And that's kind of where i was at just the three letter equations <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much i'm not yeah that's i think it's pretty important mm. well i think uh gosh i'm, I'm trying we're bouncing around so much but it's so interesting i'm trying to there there was one thought though that like i always try and i see so much potential in a lot of people but it's it's like they're not willing, like you said, you were learning so much on the job at Hood Tech that you, that was part of the reason why you were like, I don't need to go back to school. I'm learning too much here. And I just see like, do you think you can teach that or can other people, like, how does that happen? I, th uh, I, oh, I think it was pretty unique on what happened to me because I, I, I walked into a situation that was all about learning. Unfortunately, I think if you're a young engineer and you come to Hood Tech now, you don't get that. You're kind of like, hey, we need to build this. This product needs to be tweaked. So you don't get the broad reaching stuff. Right. Um, my son's just graduated from, TC just graduated from Gonzaga, mechanical engineering. And he's a bit like me where he kind of wanted to know how everything worked. I was pretty skeptical that you'd pull off what I did because I have a degree that's not exactly specific. Right. But I ended up working for someone that I think highly regarded that ability and it just worked. Uh, but I actually don't think if someone rolled in to work for us now that it would, it would, you wouldn't get near the learning experience. It was pretty unique. If you were going to go, if you were 18 again, would you go to college or yes. would you? Oh, absolutely. And would you do a bachelor's? Would you do a master's? Would you? I think I would go to a school uh, and get an engineering physics degree. Mm. There's a few schools out there 
that have degrees in engineering physics, and I think that's what I would do. Right. Get a technical degree and then start. Which is, but, but very broad. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, that's the key there is that it's broad. Yeah. Wide scope. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people get a degree and then they end up doing something else. Right. To me, the degree is really, are you, do you work hard enough to learn how to learn? Right. You know, I, I told some people this story on our trip just recently. Uh, I'm trying to see how to tell the story. Someone in production was asking a question. We were actually having them do some CAD and he was worried about, um, how much time he was spending on Google, Googling how to tweak some stuff in CAD and do it the correct way. Right. And he was worried people were, were noticing that he wasn't just catting away. Right. And I mentioned to him that every engineer I know that's down the hallway from you is constantly Googling or finding information and learning. Right. And that's why I don't think a specific degree is crazy important. You need to prove that you know how to learn and you've got some good fundamentals, but hopefully your job pushes you hard enough that you learn a bunch after that. Right. And so I think that's super important. Do you think that's kind of what makes the difference between a technician and an engineer is that just everlasting hunger to learn i do i do but i know some technicians that are very hunger to learn does that does that then make them an engineer or is there some difference still that's a really good question because it, uh, it gets super gray at some point right yeah and we have a guy at work who's super gray and we're we're utilizing it right but yeah which is really cool it and it's interesting because it's hard you it's hard to respond you you want to encourage everyone to learn more right but you also don't want to give people the false sense that oh you can just engineer yeah. being an engineer is just about throwing shit at the wall well, and I seeing what i mean it is to an extent right it is to an extent about throwing shit at the wall but you think about what you throw at the wall oh, absolutely. and you try and figure out what's going to stick and have a model and then calibrate your model based on what worked and what didn't yeah yeah right? I, I hopefully no no one takes it as you just w do random stuff until it works there's certainly uh some background to know best best paths um i also think the definition of engineer isn't someone who can use a piece of software you know you're not a very good engineer if you just know how to use solidware mechanical engineer if you just know how to draw right and you're not a very good engineer if you just know how to electrical engineer if you know how to make circuit boards right right there's a whole level of stuff that you need to be able to to see and figure out right that said often that's it's it's a lot of times it's those like how do you work with a vendor how do you work with a machine shop to make sure your model yeah is gonna they can actually make your model well that's communication like we're doing a new part and we have a new engineer who actually communicates pretty well curious if he listened to this because <laughs> <laughs> he'll know who and he is. my first thing was send the machine shop a, a mo the model don't give it a revision and say is this buildable right. just start the conversation right because there's nothing worse than spending three weeks and then sending them in they're like oh yeah we can't build that right 
when you already fine-tuned it you already yeah, did everything and then it's called polishing a turd <laughs> oh yeah it's it's that's the thing is career management is just not taught anywhere in a for in a formal manner like in in university what would you teach though i don't know you know, I have a one of my best friends in college. She's a vet, and uh, she went to one of the she went to CSU, one of the best vet schools. She's super smart. She got finished. She worked for a few years of vet, and then she started her own practice. And she was super pissed off at the school because they taught her zero business skills. Mm. Hottest and all these little all these vets, and there's a million other, you know, occupations where you start a small business, and no one's taught how to start a small business. Right. It's interesting that 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 uh, nut still hasn't been cracked in terms of meshing business and like practical. It's got to be easier with the internet, though. I would think. <laughs> I mean, I haven't had to do anything like that, but I would imagine. Just think before internet. What do you do? You'd go down to the courthouse. I mean, I wouldn't know what to do. You'd have to buy a book. Well, that's the thing. It, it, I I agree. It probably is way easier. Than it used to be but that's self-defeating because it makes people think it's easier <laughs> and then they have it served on a silver platter right yeah i guess yeah i'm past that point <laughs> so you've also aside from engineering been involved in the community in a few different ways and originally you were on the planning commission. Is that true? Is that the first formal communal involvement? Yeah, your boss, Ross Ho, got me on the city planning commission. I was. It's actually a similar thing. What we've been talking about is the whole town was arguing about the waterfront and whether to put light industrial or a park, the waterfront park that we all love. And I was curious. I like. I had no idea how anything worked. And Ross was on the planning commission, so he recommended I get on it and. If you volunteer for a position, you get asked to do a. It's not very hard to get on <laughs> yeah. at all. Uh, I did that for a few years. And then, you know, we had kids and life got very busy for 15 or so years. So how was it different from what you expected being on the commission? Uh, I don't know if it was very different. I guess I had no real idea that small towns like Hood River had written or ordinances and that's how planning went. But at the same time, people would come in for a site plan and there's some judgment right. on how to institute those. And, you know, if Walmart <laughs> comes in, it's you got to go by the ordinances. But, you know, it's it's interesting how the whole thing works. I am not an expert, right? but I'm glad I did it. I did it for a couple of years and then life got really busy. So who writes ordinances? Well, the way it works is generally a a city and we should like people in this area should realize that the city is different than the Hood River County. Right. But for the city, the way it, I think it works is you hire a city planner and there's probably a few city planners down there. Uh, they will draft stuff and then it's not an ordinance until the city council and the mayor adopt it. Mm. The planning commission is just a group of volunteers that are appointed, not elected. Right. And they can give advice, but everything has to either has to go through the the, the elected officials. Mm. And so that so that first project that you were evaluating the ordinances 
and how it measured up against those was putting heavy light oh no so uh what got me to want to be interested to learn was whether the waterfront park where all those you know we all where the children's park the is children right? park down on the waterfront and there's restaurants across the street that used to just be a field we called it kite ski beach because that's where cory racer would kite ski out of when he was the only kiter in town and the port wanted to do something with that land and i think they were talking about just putting a warehouse and some sort of light industrial well everyone went crazy in town because that was kind of the last waterfront that could be accessed and i don't know the details of what happened but i think it's a city park now the city owns it they got some grants to put the park in and it's a massive success mm. i mean the place is super busy uh so think, you think it's a good thing? I think it's a good thing. <laughs> I also launch from there too. You, you when you windsurf? When I wing, yeah. I'm, oh, when you or, wing, or, or when I windsurf, right? And what other what other projects did you see while you well, were on the board? I was not the on the planning commission when they did that. Right, right. But I'm not uh, listening. Obviously, like, ones, <laughs> like the movie theater came up. Uh, Walmart wanted a superstore. Mm. Um, Before they had one. Well, they don't have a superstore. Oh, this is, they don't have they a superstore. No, they wanted a bigger one. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, Hood River now has an ordinance that the building, like retailers of Walmart size can't have, I think it's read, read something like you can't have buildings bigger than 100,000 square feet. Okay. So a little bigger than Rosars or Safeway. Right. So if Walmart wants to come out and put a super Walmart off the freeway, you can imagine, you know, on the frontage roads there, you could have a big superstore. Walmart is welcome to come put it in there, but they have to put it in two buildings. Uh, and they didn't want to do that. Right. So that's that was an ordinance that kind of directed how Hood River gets built out. Interesting. and that, But that was before you were on the commission? I think that happened while I was on it. But the planning commission doesn't decide the uh, uh, city councilors and mayor decide with help from the city planners and probably the city manager. The city planners being the planning commission or that's no, a different? There's this, the, the way, the, the, way this, the Hood River City works is there's a mayor elected, mm. but the mayor doesn't run the city. There's a city councilors, which they form the voting members. But, but because it's such a small town, they hire a, general, a city manager. And that person is the CEO, essentially, of the city. But they, that person has to answer to the city council and the mayor. Right. And then under the city manager is a planning, a city planners. Gotcha. And that could be one or more. Are they hired? They're full-time hired. It's a busy staff. I haven't been down there hmm. forever. And then there's all other departments, you know, public works and whatever. And the right. county works the same way. There's an elected officials. I think they all get paid a, a tiny amount. They do a ton, a ton of work for a little bit of money. But then the, the county also hires a, what is it called? A administrator, which is CEO of the county. And mm. then that person runs all the departments. So is it kind of split where you have the paid people and then the volunteer? Like, are, is that kind of the way it branches out? Yeah, well... You really think of it as you could almost you could think of it as if it was a company, the board of directors would be the city councilors and the mayor. 
telling the CEO how to run it. I actually think the city councilors and the mayor are paid a little bit. It's I don't know what it is. It's ten thousand dollars a year. It's not worth for a full time job. No, no, no. City councilors is not a full time job. Okay. And I don't know the numbers anymore, but I do. I mean, I work more with the county because of HRATs. But if you're on the county board of commissions, I don't know. You might make ten thousand, maybe twenty thousand a year, but you're working your ass off. Right. Not full time. Yeah, not full time. Half time or whatever. A lot. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> it's more than it's worth. Yeah. So is there a like I haven't I'm sure I could figure all this out if I really wanted to, but is there a good way to learn how the city government works in Hood River? You know, that's a good question. You're probably gonna ask me HRATS questions. Uh but the one thing I've learned from doing HRATS is how little everyone in town knows about how our government around here works. Right. Like, it is super confusing. Like, I'm going to tell you a fact that's probably going to blow your mind. There, I think, are five uh, government age groups in Hood River County that mow lawns to make our fields, the sparse fields that we have, into parks or playgrounds. I'm going to go through them. There's the city. City has parks. They have to mow those lawns. There's the county. There's a few parks there. They're getting rid of them, but they also have a They're getting rid of them. Well, there's like bear, uh, there were some parks that have been closed off of Highway 35. Okay. But uh, Kingsley is a park, right? That's coming back. So right. the people that in our small valley that deal with maintenance of parks or grass, Hood River County, Hood River City, the school district, Parks and Rec, Hood River Parks and Rec District, and then the port. That's five. It's crazy. And they... How... So who... So the city answers to the city. The county answers to the county. They're all separate. But then the port answers to the state? No. Uh, well, I think they all... You could say that all, the, all of them have to answer to Oregon law. Right. Right. But they're all independent. Like they all, they all have their own right to exist and, yeah. and some sort My of. My bet is Hood River Parks and Rec was formed under Hood River County. I don't know how it was, how it was formed. And ports have been around forever. There's all kinds of probably laws that I don't know about, but they're all separate. Right. So let's pretend you're a lacrosse team and you want to rent a field. Well, who do you go talk to? Well, there's there's fields at the schools. Right. There's stuff that Parks and Rec deals with. And sometimes Parks and Rec works well with, uh, with the schools. And I think particularly now it's working better. But then there's also fields down at the port. It's kind of crazy. Right. That's... <laughs> That's democracy, I guess, right? Yeah. You get all this. It's kind yeah. of like hood tech. You just, who do I answer to? Well, I don't know. Yeah. Go see whose name is on the drawing and see who did it and go ask him. Yeah. That's exactly how it works on a drawing, by the way. <laughs> um, so did you, like, what were you... Do you feel like you got, like, how long were you on the planning commission? Oh, I think two or three years. Not 
terribly long. And were you just waiting to get off? Were no, you kind I of actually bored really, or? I really liked it. And I actually think I was chair at the end. I was learning <laughs> a kept, lot. It's easy to get promoted. <laughs> but I'm telling you, but I think I had a TC was two and Beth was five. And oh, you had your hands full. I had my hands full. I, I at one point I'm like, okay, I just need to leave. Yeah. And that's what happened. And yeah. then. You know, you get busy, and then soon the kids are in high school, and then you can go do something else. It's almost like it needs to be, like, like in some countries, you have to give either military or yeah. civilian service for a few years. I, I actually think that would be a great idea. For ATRATS, it's interesting to me, when we have meetings, it's really split. There's people before kids, mm. you know, young people, right. your age-ish or much younger. Right. And then there's people with older kids. And there's barely anyone that there's a few that can show up with that have, well, 10 year olds, eight year olds, like, right. They're just too busy. And that's, that's fine. Right. It's totally fine. Right. But that is an interesting gap because the young people, like it's these organizations, since there's no money to make, it's not like people, people are just doing it because they want to help. Yeah. And then people get too busy and they're like, I got to yeah. leave. And then you need, like, it's hard to keep it flowing, right? Through a generation or through a decade. Yeah. You know, I just went out to Mac where I was just on vacation, McCall, and I did, there was a biathlon shoot and skate and they had award ceremony afterwards. And the guy running the organization said, Hey, everyone needs to know that to run races like this and have a biathlon club like McCall does, you need sprinters and marathoners. It was really a cool analogy. He's like, to put on a, an event like this, we need a bunch of people that are willing to come in and volunteer. And that's a sprint. You need sprint volunteers that fill up an event and do what it takes to put on the event, and then they're done. But you also need marathoners just to, in the background to keep the thing running. Right. And I think that was spot on. Right. Do you think that same thing applies to ATRATS? It's exactly, that's exactly right. Mm. And which, are they both hard to maintain, the yeah. sprinters? Yeah, I think you, you, I don't know if we're doing a good job, but there's definitely some people that are marathoners. I think I'm a marathoner now. I don't want to get burned out. Yeah. Uh, and we don't want to burn or bum people out. But to put anything on events, like we're going to have a fundraiser on March 16th, it's going to take a few people to step up for... I don't know, a couple of weeks, do a bunch of work, and then they're done for a while. Right. Yeah. And so what, like, what does the organization of ATRATS look like? So uh, ATRATS is, is a board. ATRATS doesn't actually have members. We call them supporters. So if you donate to us or if you help at work parties, we consider you a supporter. Mm. But there's no membership. But there are, uh, it's either 10 or 11 board members. There's four kind of executive branches. We have a, a president, myself. We have a vice president. We have a secretary and a treasurer. And then we have a bunch of members at large that we have specific roles for. Right. Like we have uh, someone who does a wonderful job doing the latest newsletters that come out. We have someone that basically edits and posts them because it's a pain in the ass if you're the person writing the thing in, you have to put it on the website and do all that stuff. Right. And then we have um, uh, trail adopter liaisons. We have a volunteer coordinator. We have someone who represents kind of the other trails of Washington side and whoop D. Mm. Um, 
probably forgot someone. Yeah. But it's about 10 of us. But when we have HRATS meetings once a month, you know, 10 to 20 people show up. <clears throat> I would say oftentimes at an HRATS meeting, the board is outnumbered by the people that are just there to help. And is it often the same people or is it it's just... Off, oh, it's often the same people. Right. And what what is the goal of HRATS or well, the mission? Uh, you'd have to read it on our website. I won't get it right. But we want to make uh, trail experience for users uh, more seamless, and we want more, more trail. Uh-huh. Uh, we'd like to see a more diverse user community. Um, and really, the other thing we really do, we need to do is communicate to the users uh, what the landowners need. The other thing that's I, I, I mentioned that people around here don't really know how uh, – the city and county government works. Well, they absolutely don't know how the trail system works. Post Canyon is on uh, the Hood River County tree farm where mm. the Hood River tree farm, the Hood River County tree farm brings in about 30% of the county's budget every year. So it's quite important. Mm. There's no way ever the trees are not going to be cut and we're just going to have trails everywhere. But that tree farm is 30,000 acres that it in, it's all the way to the the eastern hills as well um then there's some other trails the whoopty trails on private land and the, there's trails across the river above hospital hill that are on private land and we need to communicate with the landowners and communicate to the users as well right so this i don't want to diverge us too much you can feel free yeah. to no comment if you want <laughs> but that that point that we can't just not sell trees a lot of it, it reminds me of the the people who say just we got to stop using all petroleum today. Well, right? no, you're right. We could stop selling trees. The Hood River County could stop selling trees if someone if we raise three to four million dollars a year or stopped yeah. repairing roads or like, yeah, right? oh, yeah, like yeah, there's absolutely. some there's some compromise yeah right yeah you know i will say and i think you'll be happy with this hood river county is actually being pretty progressive now they are working with a carbon sequestration or carbon capture group and they are are altering their cutting a bit and they're going to bring in some money i don't know the details so i don't want to get myself in trouble but hood river county is not just behaving like completely wiping out forests they right. are definitely making the forest sustainable as a farm and plus adding the fact that they're trying to uh work with i don't know the term of it but a a carbon capture group that's actually going to pay hood river county a significant amount of money huh, financially it was a, from what i've been told it's a it's a definite win for the county which is pretty cool. I don't know the details of how it works. Like some sort of nonprofit group that is paying the county. Yeah, the because they want to capture carbon. Yeah, for their there's funding. there's a group that's willing to pay the county significant amount of money to not cut more than X. Interesting. And the county, I think, is going to do it. Interesting. I mean, they can cut. I mean, they they can still use it as a farm, but there's some level of cutting right that gets them X dollars. Right. Uh, I don't know if it's Don, I don't want to. I think the county would be pretty happy if I got the word out, but I'm not. I don't want to be <laughs> yeah. putting misinformation out there. Yeah. So, what's the hardest part about fulfilling the mission of ATRETS? 
honestly getting yeses to new trails. Uh, but things from are, the county from Chief any well anyone we would like to do other new trails other places too. Mm. We would love uh, to completely redo Nestor Peak on the Washington side, and the DNR uh, won't let us build anything new because they don't have a recreational plan and. We've mm. offered to pay for archaeological studies even. Right. And we can't get anything done. The county has, in the last year, has been really good to work with. The Hood River County. The Hood River County has. I mean, we're really, we've redone Family Man, which is a really big deal. Right. It's going to happen now. They've cut the trees down. I think Family Man is safe from further cutting for, I think, forever. But if in... If twenty, if in twenty years people aren't using it, it would get cut. But you know, you and I know that right. that place is Family Man is going to look like uh, the waterfront park, right? And the thought of cutting it will just be laughable. There'll be some protests if that. Well, I mean, <laughs> what would happen if someone said, "Hey, let's take the city front waterfront park out and put a warehouse where fifteen <laughs> people work?" Yeah, I mean, it would just be laughable. Yeah. Um. That's probably really hard to have to... It's not like you, there's one landowner. That's right. You have to go to a bunch of different landowners that have their own players. And, and you have to communicate differently to each of them. Right. Right, because the Hood River County is a public agency. They need to work with us. But the other ones are just private, and you have to go to them in a way that makes it seem easy to them, that it doesn't seem... Uh, like the entire world's going to come on their land. Right. It's re really difficult. So do you have a specific person that's responsible of all land interaction, or does it no, depend on... it depends on who it is. Like, we have people that have been working with the private landowners in the county and across the river uh, that we just... That relationship works. Let's not, let's not change it. Right. I would say I'm the most... I, I do the communication with the Hood River County. Mm. And that's, we spend most of our time in Post Canyon, most mm. of our effort. Right. And would you, that, would you say that's just because there's the most potential for trails there? Yes. And the most potential for yeses? Yes. From landowners? Yes. Yeah. And that's where most of Hood River, I mean, if you live in Hood River, you can almost ride to Post Canyon from your house. Mm. So um, to go other places, you have to drive. So are there ways that the community could help with a place like Nestor Peak and getting the DNR to be more responsive? That is a great question. Uh, it's complicated. I'm not an expert. But one of our problems is the DNR, uh, the Washington side of the DNR sees us as an organ organization, which doesn't help. But what we really need is an elective official to tell the DNR to create a very simple recreational plan for the Nestor Peak area. Right. And then it would be super easy. Right. Because we're not asking for money to build trails. We're asking for permission to build trails. Right. In a very responsible way. Right. So if anyone has connections to a Washington politician, we'd love your help. And would that be a state level politician or a, I forget, is it Klickitat County over there? Yeah, it gets confusing over there. Actually, I would have to ask the people that are more in knowledge. I'm not an expert. Because that's its own different yeah. county, different city. Yeah. 
And the DNR is not right? just a county organization. Are they? They're state, right? It's state. It's, it's not a state fed thing. run. Right. God, that sounds difficult. <laughs> it is, but you know, if you ever ask any trail organization what your most difficult things is, that's all it is. Right. It's not about how high to build a berm or what jumps or what rocks should go where. It's about how to get access to trails that are safe and not pissing the land owner off. Interesting. It's like it's not even hard to get funding relative to this. We is don't, that true? HRS does not have trouble getting funding to build trails. People are extremely generous around here. That's so it it, it almost sounds like a networking problem because it's about meeting the right people, the right players that it is, but you also remember, like, not everyone in town would like only mountain bike trails all over the county. Right. Right. So it's like if you're if you are the county, you have to listen to everyone. Uh, mountain bikers can be pretty squeaky, the squeaky wheel, and there's a lot of them. Right. But you have to you have to make sure. I think the county has done a nice job actually uh, playing fair. I of course wish there was more trails. Is there anyone like I'm trying to imagine what recreationist or what person would be against a biking trail who oh, well let's say you're uh equestrians aren't equestrians and horses and bikes don't mix super well so that has right. to be done in a in a good way i think runners would tell you that they don't want downhill trails everywhere right. but i think runners in general would be like yeah some cross-country trails winding around climb trails around post canyon is wonderful because they like to ride them right but they don't want to get run over uh we have to be a little careful because a lot of the trails in post canyon and other places in the county are motorized trails and which mountain bikes are allowed on but they're funded through a very good off-road highway vehicle organ permit system if you have a motorcycle you buy a permit it's cheap it's like 15 bucks and that money goes into a pile and it's, when you buy and they take gas tax money because when you're riding your motorcycle off road, you're buying gas and the gas tax doesn't go to repair roads. So they fill these big, they, they, Hoodover County brings in a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in grants from that process. And that's how a lot, all the moto trails on Hood River County get made. Hmm. And bikers use them. It's a, I wish there was a program like that for mountain bikes. So you could use more funding, but it's not. Oh, we could always use more funding. <laughs> but what we really need is more, more, we would like more access to trail. Right. More land, more essentially. Land, more yeah. permission. And I guess with, with the runners and with the equestrians, it's not that if you guys build trails they can't build their own trails it's just that there's only so much land yeah. that people are willing to let people build well, trails on over the years the last couple of years and i think it's changed a little bit but uh the county doesn't want to overbuild the trails oregon fish and wildlife has some opinion on the right amount of trail density right and that's up for argument and it's slightly it's changing now so uh and that's kind of how we're building a few new trails now the uh Fish and Wildlife doesn't really care if you build a trail next to another trail or next to a road. They would love to see corridors for elk and deer and other animal to be able to pass through areas instead of having just a corridor of 
spread out trails where it's just really hard for animals to live. Mm. And I, Do you think there's anyone that's got a map of the gorge or the Hood River White Salmon Valleys and saying this is what ideally the forest and the trails and, and the parks and the whole thing looks like in 20 years. Oh, I don't know. There's a master plan for the county trails, but that needs to, it's, the idea is to do it, redo it in the next couple of years because the master plan was done 2008 or something. And it's time to redo it. By ATRATS? No, that... by the county. Okay, that's the county trail yeah. plan. Which includes biking, hiking, yeah. equestrian, moto, all everything. of it. Mm. And who, so that's county, so that's under the, the administrator, the CEO of the county, as you yeah, put it. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, well, there's a forest manager who, forest manager can do pretty much what they want with the land, but there is a county trail ordinance <laughs> that he has to follow, and trails are a secondary use of the tree farm. Mm. So that's written down. That's nice. Uh, but as everyone knows, when a logging happens, trails close, which is fine. We're actually totally willing to rebuild trails after it gets cut. Um, there's a few areas like Family Man that we don't want to see clear cut. And I think we came to a really good uh, compromise there. Is that just because you have such a high density of work in such a small space that it would just be... For Family Man? Right. Oh, I just think it would be... a shame if family man ever got clear cut but what's wh how, how do you put that in what's different about family man it's than flat so if you're a kid and you're a family or you're a beginner mm. family man is the only flat place to ride it's the breeding grounds for it's new the bikers breeding ground and i think what atrats is going to do with the county in the next year or two is going to make it completely it's going to make it even more of a breeding ground supercharge it yeah it's gonna we're gonna make it super progressive so if you are a beginner rider you can go out and work your way through different skills and hopefully not just jumps but little different features so that when you get more comfortable you can go ride more technical trails here and other places right and i think everyone needs that everyone wants to do it safely but if you have no place to practice it's hard to go to a new trail or some of the upper trails and ride some of the more difficult things. Right. We'd also like to make more, some more technical trails up high too, or more advanced riders. Sure. Kind of, yeah. More just extend that progression. Yeah. But family man's going to be the heart of it for sure. Mm, right. Oh, I had two things and I couldn't decide which I was going to ask you. And now I don't know which either one is. Um, at one point, you said that you wanted more diversity of people. What other than building that progression so they can get started? Is it what are the other hard things for building that diversity? Like, is it just getting enough resources to like that barrier, that economic barrier to entry? You know, that's a really good question. I think that's the million-dollar question. Uh, and we've talked a, a lot about it. For the HRETS board, it really came up during the pandemic, you know, with a, all the George Floyd stuff. Uh, and I've we've tried to work into it. It's really hard to do. But I think access is one. But what I've been told by local, you know, Hispanic leaders 
is that there's a comfort level in areas, whether you're in Post Canyon or skiing, that, you know, we'll call it the Hispanic community from Odell, I don't want to generalize, often doesn't feel super comfortable in in the trail network, mm. which that, honestly, that took me by surprise. Right. So that that seems like the easiest thing that we could try to change some Spanish signs. Uh, and maybe, maybe what really needs to realize is everyone riding up there needs to realize that not everyone's super comfortable up there. It's a completely new environment. You're on a piece of equipment that you might not be comfortable with. Everyone knows what it's like to, to be a little scared. And maybe if you're from an economic background, that's just super foreign up there. It's just another thing. That's a barrier. Right. But I, it's hard. I, we're talking about what how to kind of break some of those barriers down. Um, I think the, I, I think starting easy. My opinion is starting easy is a good thing to do. And I think Family Man is a good thing, good place for people to start. I think the Hood River, the pump track at Golden Eagles, a good thing to get people on bikes. Uh, do you think? Like, part of it is, do they want to be there, right? Think, part of it's a culture thing of, if it's I, like, if their friend drags them up there and they don't even yeah. know what biking is and they don't even have any interest in it, yeah, they're not going to be very comfortable. Like, did did you I learn think, why they're not comfortable? <clears throat> well, I think the the term they is a little general. Um but I, other, whoever this person was talking yeah. about, that's who the uncomfortable, the un, they is the uncomfortable people, yeah. whoever they are. I don't know who they are. Honestly, I what I got from him, and I, I actually am going to tell you his name afterwards because I want you to interview him next. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think the best thing to do is just say hi to everyone as you ride by them. Right. And that often, he tells me that does not happen up in Post Canyon. Right. So maybe that's one thing if of the million people that are listening to this, when you're riding by someone, especially if their skin color is not lily white, say hi. Yeah, hi goes a long way. Hi goes a long way. Interesting. What about on the um you think the the bike supply chain in Hood River, if you will, is pretty dialed in as far as having access to I'm, affordable i mean it's an expensive sport right it's an expensive sport but i actually think we can overcome that because i think there's a lot of used bikes out there that are really really good right uh and i and i think the community we're trying to reach is and it's a pretty divert i actually think there's a pretty diverse economic community that we're talking about you know some people have been here for a few years and some people have been here for a couple generations and to spend a, a $1,500 on a bike is a lot. But if you want to do that, it's not out of the equation question. Right. Uh, I think that one we can overcome. And teaching people to maintain, take care of their equipment because may, paying someone to maintain it, that's the next expensive thing yeah, right but you're asking the wrong guy there because i won't take my bike to any shop and i just assume everyone can take care of their bike which is wrong i get it but it, do you think it's that hard to take care of your bike don't you i feel i've 
I'm lazy, right? <laughs> I've figured out how to spend the least time possible on my bike and get the the most hours I can with the least out the most riding hours for the least maintenance hours. Would you agree that there's a lot of tricks to the trade? That's there just... is a lot of tricks to the trade, <clears throat> but I think we. I I don't think that's. I think that can be overcome too. Right. Most people don't even know about that part of it. They yeah. Don't, they don't bike, right? That's not a. Yeah, I. <laughs> I don't know. All the bike shops would probably hate me, but it's it's amazing how often some people bring their bike in. I I like I like I'm an engineer. I like taking things apart, so I do almost all my maintenance. Right. But I, I don't know. But you also, even if you don't do all of your maintenance, just doing the minor routine stuff extends oh. significantly how often you have to do the big overhauls, yeah. right? Yeah. But yeah, it's an, and then back to the question of like who... What is the goal? Who are you trying to serve, right? Who, like, it's, like, HRAT's goal is just build as many, well. No. Yeah, no, that wasn't the goal, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know he says. I, I think if you went to our website, I should probably have it memorized, but I don't. I mean, one of our goals is definitely to communicate well between landowners and the rider community, and the other is to make sure the trails are built and maintained well. Mm. Uh, people don't realize this, but we can't just go modify trails in Post Canyon. Every trail in Post Canyon has a trail adopter, and that a trail adopter signs an agreement with Hood River County, not ATRATS. Mm. So really, in Post Canyon, ATRATS is really a liaison between adopters and the county, and we just try to, basically, we have word out to the adopters, if you need help, ask if you need materials ask if you need something just ask that's interesting that's a different model than i had in mind it's yep. more of a uh, decentralized model where you guys are just the support system for these people that want to champion a given trail yeah but hudover <clears throat> county owns the land they right. have a trail program and now they have a good trail coordinator recreational trail coordinator and that's all great so we're just trying to support trail adopters. And the other thing we do is we'll propose something like Family Man. That's an HRATS thing. But after we rebuild Family Man, and that's under basically HRATS, I signed the adopter agreement. We're going to hand the new Family Man off to about four adopters. Mm. And then HRATS is not signed. It's, then it will be an agreement between these adopters and Hood River County. Right. People don't realize that. Right. And El Dorado was similar. You know, we we funded and built it. And then once El Dorado was built, we handed it off. There's two adopters for El Dorado because it's so long. Right. Which is just a, a climb trail. Yeah. Can even, you can go down El Dorado too, but it's yeah. mostly a climb trail, well, for right? for little kids, it, like if you want to do your first shuttle and you're six, El Dorado is a pretty sweet trail. Mm. Right. But it's, it's in the Post Canyon area, just yeah. for people that don't know, but... You were you were saying that you guys are happy to rebuild trails that get clear cut. Other than Family Man, yeah. How how much did you really mean that? Well, because I I know the financials <laughs> financial stuff behind it, and it's it's big dollars. It's not that hard like, to rebuild. Like how much would um, Bad Motor Scooter? 
clear cutting that, how much would that revenue would that bring into the county, more or less? That one's pretty small. That's kind of uh, why I picked it. If there's a better it's, one, you it's can. A, it's a hundreds of thousands of dollars for for a bad motor scooter. Yeah. Wow. It's wood is expensive. In, and that's revenue, not profit. Yeah, I don't want. But I'll, one thing, if people actually listen to this and know about lower post canyons on private land, right? Uh, and we would love to put some trails up to make it safe along the road and down, so you don't have to ride the gravel road up to seven streams. That wood is worth uh, close to a half a million dollars. Just like the corridor next well, to the road. But the, but the guy who owns its land is either side. I mean, if you if you just put a strip and and left trees just on side of either side of the trail, it, it wouldn't be that much. But if you say, hey, Here's the chunk of land. Don't you clear cut anything. It's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. I don't think it's a million dollars, but we can't fund. I mean, if you look at the budgets of all our government agencies around you, we're not throwing, you know, I know a lot of people would probably love to see an indoor sports complex around here. We don't have one of those. Right. Right. So you have funding to build trails. You don't have funding to displace the revenue yeah. from forests. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like an order of magnitude. We're talking about magnitude before. Right. You know, us throwing $20,000 a trail is not that hard. Us throwing 200000 or $400,000 at land yeah. suddenly becomes very difficult. Do you think you guys would ever try and acquire land? Or I don't is that know. Just... There's a whole... I think it's better. I, I think for now it's better if the public agencies own the land. Right. What about, but in this case where there's a private owner, do they, they don't own the road. They don't own the road. But they own the land right next to it. Yeah. It would be best if the county ended up buying that land in some way. Right. But it has to be a deal that, the, that everyone's willing to do. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting one because that's kind of a main vein and there's no, I mean. Every, can... Everyone asks me about it and everyone's worried the trees are going to, and I'll be really honest, my opinion is that the trees should come out that takes out hundreds of thousands of dollars then the land's not worth much you put trails in then the county or someone acquires the land you put trails in and the trees grow back and if it's worth if those trails are worth so much money and you know it's 50 60 years before the trees get cut again right so i don't i think there's a lot of money to build trails but i don't think there's a lot of mo enough money to buy the land not to clear cut Except for in very specific spots. Right. And that's why you were saying that you're happy to rebuild trail because yeah. it's so much harder to buy land than oh. it is to rebuild well, the trail. Actually, it's, it's, this is where it gets complicated. Hood River County can't actually, like if we said we wanted to buy the land for GP, a very, very common trail up there. Hood River County cannot, it's a state law, cannot sell forest land unless they acquire equal forest land. There's really strong Oregon law, mm. and I don't know all the details, but they can't just sell land. Right. Right, there has to, there's strong Oregon law that is really attempting to keep the forest stock high. Like they can't sell it and just put houses up there. It's not gonna happen. Right. Because it's so vital to the income well, at stream some point, of the... I have no idea when the state made these laws, but 
they're uh, they're real. I mean, you, they there's really strict laws on what the county can do with their forest land. Right. To give you an example, we're probably going too long. We bought no. two extra trees in Family Man to put four drops into. There was too many trees left in Family Man, and we asked to pull two trees out, and we bought them. It was $329 for the two trees. I got a email from some state forester granting some waiver of the two-week waiting period. So we bought two trees from the county, and the poor fort had tree farm manager had to register that I am now a forest buyer and had to go through the full process. It's crazy. It's nuts. Huh? Yeah. That's, it's just so it's mind blowing to me that, cause I normally think of the County as like, you think of taxes as being the income, but the fact that they have natural resources and yeah. most people are probably like, duh, Sean, you're like, everybody knows that, but Maybe I'm naive. Maybe maybe most so people it's, are like uh, me. It's, thir- it's roughly 30% of the county budget. And the reason the county has all that land is because a lot of it was defaulted in the Great Depression. Like 1928-ish. From private? So private people owned all of like post Canyon. I think private people owned a lot of the county land. Mm. And they couldn't afford the taxes in the Great Depression. And it got forfeited. Oof. to the county and without that money taxes would be significantly higher right so interesting you, so that directly affects the tax rate yeah. in the county well so let's say the county brings in three million bucks and there's twenty five thousand people here and not all of them pay taxes it's a decent chunk of change every year right which, which that's super interesting because that's one of that downstream effects of just the what I was saying earlier about the, the, just the extremist or the, the, like the environmentalists that just say, stop cutting all trees today. Yeah. Right. If we stopped cutting all trees today on this planet, what would happen? Well, we wouldn't build houses out of wood. A lot of potentially bad things, right? One of those things, tax, all of a sudden your taxes, your count, your, County tax. I don't even know how that works. If state tax filters down to county tax, it would be the way it works. Is the county the county tax is less by three million bucks? So basically, we stop cutting all trees. All of a sudden, your taxes go up. Yes, in this county, that's absolutely true. Period. Right. Which I'm not saying that's the right or wrong way. I'm just saying we need to consider that before we just say stop cutting all trees. I think I think the conversation's (laughs) valid, but. I think anytime you have that conversation, just say the word $3 million. Like, right. Cause that's the magnitude. Yeah. Like if people are willing to pull, pull out three to $4 million extra, we could stop cutting trees. There would be some more forest fire issues, right? There's that too. Right. But we couldn't even pass the, the food and beverage tax a few years ago. I think it would, I think there's, it would be a no go. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. It's this whole world that I know nothing about. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I think that that pretty much is a good place to finish up. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on, Tim. That was that was really fun. I'm I'm pretty I am pretty excited because I'm I'm passionate about the the whole just public space, the whole just the idea of community and the, like the communal priorities and and 
just like like you were saying with the sprinters and the long distance yeah. runners like and and maybe the, like like who's thinking about where the community is going to be in 20 years some people for sure but who i i would have no idea if we're going going in a good direction right so i think there's a lot of people thinking about it i don't know the answer i don't know if the people thinking about it are making the decisions mm. um i think someone like you should just pick one and try something yeah i mean i actually think what i did just randomly getting on the planning commission was a good idea i don't think it's something you should do forever because it's going to drive you nuts like anytime you get on one of these things it's going to drive you nuts but you'll be a little more educated and you'll probably do a little good when you do it right i agree it sounds like a very good idea how much fun it sounds like it's not <laughs> i'm fun. not you didn't exactly sell it <laughs> no i will say the atrats thing is a lot of work but at least I am passionate about the trails and I really like to ride the trails and I will defend the county commissioners and the city councilors because they're doing a lot of work for something that it's hard for me to imagine that they're passionate about. Right. And everyone's complaining about. Right. Like, and they're not, it's not like we have a bunch of highly paid politicians around here. It's the exact opposite. It's a bunch of people that want to help and they might believe things that are different from you. Right. Go figure. Right. So if people want to help ATRATS, where can they find you and where can they help? Uh, we have an email. Uh, the simplest one is info at ATRATS.org. If you email that and offer help, we will attempt to put you on a list to get you to help, whether it's uh, trail work, but just like sometimes fundraisers. Like we have a fundraiser coming up on the 16th. Where's that? It's at Fer uh, Ferment. Ferment on the yeah. 16th at five what time i think it's uh i think it's more like six okay yeah what do you, what's what's that gonna entail what's the uh uh we're it's going to be a fundraiser there's going to be a raffle uh mm. and then the breweries actually i should have been talking about this someone will be <laughs> mad at me the breweries in town are going to do a trail beer beer for the spring a trail beer, beer. and okay. they're all going to brew their own beer that's oh. going to be like for mountain bikers and they're going to have a special name. They get to name it whatever they want. And there's going to be a contest of who, what beer was the best. And I think a dollar or more from each beer sold will go to Atrats. Wow. Yeah, it'll be kind of cool. We've been wanting to do it for a while. The pandemic really hindered that. Yeah. It's funny how beer and biking... Yeah. yeah. So are you guys going to be doing evaluating the beer at that event? Is that part I of the I think you're going to be evaluating. It's going to be a public Oh, I think they're going to at the event, I think they're going to I think they're going to bring out the beers. I'm not sure if they're done because they had to be made special for this. Right. And then the public is going to vote on which beer is the best. Mm. Cool. Yeah. And if someone just wants to donate some money, is that possible? Absolutely. We have a website, and there's a PayPal link. It's hrats.org, and there's a link on there. We would we will put your money to good use. Sweet. There you go. Okay, well, thanks so much, Tim. And thank you, Sean. Thanks to everyone listening. We, uh, we love you guys' support and your feedback. It's always fun to hear what people think because... Tim and I get to enjoy the conversation, but it's fun to, to extend it onto the street or, or onto the yeah. trails. So be well, everybody.